The uncertainty, change and cancelling culture currently happening in society tremendously impacts everyone, also at work. People want to feel they belong to their organization and feel inclusive in a diverse culture. Not having this feeling can cause stress, unsafety, discomfort, which in this high-pressure society can lead to distrust and health problems. In Deloitte's podcast series, we talk with a variety of people with a variety of background and expertise. I'm Anne-Barbara Lemmens. I'm leading the diversity, equity and inclusion proposition at Deloitte Consulting. I will have candid conversations with people working in a wide variety of societal environments to gain and share knowledge that can be used in the business world. Hi everyone, welcome to this third podcast of Deloitte's psychological podcast series. What can we learn from? And today I will have a candid and open conversation with Daan van Knippenberg, Professor of Organizational Behavior at Rice University in Houston in the US. Daan, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Absolutely, thank you. So I'm uh, Daan van Knippenberg. I'm a Professor of Organizational Behavior at Rice University, but also with a fractional appointment at Erasmus University, Professor of Organizational Behavior. And I am the co-founder co-owner and scientific director of The Better Company, which is a small company in the Netherlands dedicated to supporting organizations in evidence-based people management. Great, thank you. And we will get back to that as well, right, later in the conversation. Um, so, yeah, so what I would like to ask, uh, what I actually ask all my guests is the first question, what do you think is the definition of psychological safety and why is it so important? I would define psychological safety as the feeling that you can speak your mind uh, and be yourself without negative social consequences. And this is extremely important uh, for knowledge work and for inclusion. For knowledge work, because at the essence of knowledge work is that you can benefit from sharing different perspectives and integrating those, which can only happen if you have an open discussion if you can share ideas, if you can explore things that you currently don't understand, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and people only do this to the extent that they experience psychological safety. So hmm. high quality knowledge work, high quality performance and knowledge work is only possible with psychological safety. Psychological safety for me is also core to the feeling of inclusion as we understand it in uh, DEI. And when we talk about inclusion, and the fact that inclusion of people of what, what we call in the U.S. historically marginalized groups mm -hmm. uh, can be under, under pressure. In many ways, we're talking about their feelings of psychological safety being under pressure. It is more difficult for people to feel psychologically safe at work when they are a member of an underrepresented group. Uh, so from a DEI perspective, uh, psychological safety is also extremely important because going back to the first point I make, you can only have the positive effects of diversity, as you see them in knowledge work, the benefits of diversity perspectives, if you have psychological safety. So the behavioral expression of inclusion requires a psychological experience of inclusion. Yeah. Can you tell a bit more? Because I find it interesting what you say about the uh, marginalized groups, right? So it's you said, by definition, it's harder for this group to feel included. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That's yeah, so I think there, there are two two things at stake here. One is many things, when we talk about the behavior of, of people in organizations, many many things we talk about are actually really fundamental human 
mm-hmm. uh, uh, processes. It's like fundamental human, universal human processes, universal psychologies at play. And as the saying has it, birds of a feather f- uh, flock together. It is easier to feel at home uh, somewhere, to, f- to feel that you fit in if you're more similar to the people around you. And, and the notion of, you know, historically marginalized groups uh, is almost by definition, uh, these are people that tend to be in a minority in many situations they find themselves in. Yeah. Like if, if, if you're on higher management, you might be the only or one of a few women there, or you might be the only or one of a few people of color, et cetera, et cetera. So being different, being dissimilar in that sense, uh, to other people in and of itself can already create uh, the feeling that uh, it's more difficult to fit in. It's more difficult to get acknowledged. It, it, you are, what you say and do is scrutinized more, et cetera. So it can put pressure on your psychological safety. Yeah. And is that something that comes from the person who is marginalized, uh, him or herself? Or is that something that is... Because uh, because of the people this person interacts with, I would say it is by and large the second. Like to uh-huh. some extent, you could imagine that it's also what you anticipate, mm-hmm. but I think that would be uh, putting the emphasis on the wrong place. Yeah, I think the reality the reality is um, it, the more dissimilar you are to the people around you, uh, the more you might find yourself in the in the margin of conversations, in the in the margin of the social networks, might find it more difficult to get your contributions recognized, et cetera. So I think it really is, I would definitely put the emphasis on, let's call it the majority group mm-hmm. yeah. uh, present and not, and not on the people that find themselves in this more marginalized position. Yeah. Yeah. So how is the world doing then actually, right? Uh, on, on psychological safety, if you think, if you bring this into, into that question. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm an optimist. Okay. So so I think to a certain extent, your question, I mean, it's a very, very fair question. To a certain extent, the question is, is the glass half full or is the glass half empty? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I tend to, to, see, to, to see the glass more half full than half empty. So at least what, on, on the optimistic side, I would at least say there is so much awareness of the importance of psychological safety now compared to 10, 20 years ago. I think we really, it has become... An integral part, not just, you know, in the scientific community, we know it's important, but in the business community, it is recognized. It, it is part of how we talk about things. Mm-hmm. And and that awareness, I think, is really important. So that's the good news. And the, on the other side, you can also see that we live in an increasingly polarized world. You know, if you talk, talk about stuff like cancel culture or... Um, uh, polarize the polarization in politics, etc. Increasingly, it seems to be uh, uh, people often find themselves in situations that they only are open to what people that already think like them have to say. So, the more pessimistic view would be there are some there are some trends in society that are not helpful mm-hmm. because psychological safety is directly related to our openness to other viewpoints and our openness to people that might have a different perspective on the world. And increasingly, it also seems that we, uh, we tend to sort ourselves into, uh, into situations with like-minded others. Yeah. Like, for instance, in the U.S., you have this notion of the great sorting, they actually call it, mm-hmm. where people move from one state to the other. So if, 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 you're, if, if you're a Republican and you're in a blue yeah. state, you move to a red state and vice versa. That's not helpful. No, no. So what what should we what should we do though? 
what what can we do about it? Because what I also hear you saying, and that's also what my my view on it is, um, we are all biased. We all judge. We all uh, have behavior based on the fact uh, that we would like to belong to this group, right? That's our known uh, where in the known situation. That's what we would like to stay in. Uh, we try to resist the unknown, right? That's just that's just difficult or even scary for people. So what what mm-hmm. can we do mm-hmm. about that? Because that's also in the in the core of who we are. So how can we? What can we do? Well, this is all. That's it's a really important question. It's also a really difficult question. And I'm tempted to say that if if you if you really let literally say what can we do, I think it pays off to focus on what's under your control. So mm-hmm. where you can have let's say small wins. Yeah. I don't have a solution for how to fix polarization no. in society. <laughs> no, no, that, is, no. <laughs> that is beyond my control and to a certain extent beyond my imagination. Yeah. But we, we can talk about, you know, how how do you lead your life? How do you interact with the people around you? How do you interact with the people at work? Yeah. And one way to think about it is the way that Carol Dweck talks about uh, mindsets, mm-hmm. a growth mindset, a fixed yeah. mindset. And to 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 do our very best to adopt more of a growth mindset and think, well, you know. You don't learn from exposure to more of the same. You learn from the from new experiences. You learn from the exposure to different perspectives and, and different points of view. Yeah. And being open-minded about what, what other people have to say and trying to understand why they say what they say and why they believe what they believe um, adds value to your life and enriches you because you stand to learn something. And if you close yourself off from this, you're, you're missing out on opportunities to learn. So really, if you, if you can adopt that mindset and pr- approach people in your personal life and in your working life and the perspective, I will grow more, I will learn more, I will develop more um, if I'm more open to what others believe, what others see, what others have to share. doesn't mean I have to agree with everything, but just being open to, to their point of view and trying to understand what they say I think that's a really fundamental start to to, to uh, doing things better. And we also know this from research because this is this is related to the notion of psychological safety. This is relation to the notion of what's called perspective taking. To what extent are you focused on trying to understand what the world like uh, looks like through other people's eyes? And we know, for instance, that teams are able to be to to create more value for instance, to be more creative from their diversity if they engage more in perspective taking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are, and these are things that are under your control. Yeah. We know that, that, that if, you, if, if, you, if you reflect on these things, you can change your mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you behave differently, it also invites different behavior from the people that you're interacting with. Yeah. So yeah, go exactly. for the small wins. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And that's really also the what I see when I work with clients on diversity, equity and inclusion, right? It's uh, we don't really need to convince clients anymore on the fact that diversity is helping on performance or with performance, right? So that that's a taken and that's fortunate. I, I'm very happy that, that to see that. Um, but what I find difficult still is to tell them, well, but psychological safety is actually the soil for that, right? You need to create that before you can even put targets on diversity. You can almost say, and I'm not, well, I, yeah, 
uh, almost say, I'm actually telling clients that if you fix psychological safety, you will create a context for inclusion and then diversity will come on itself. And it's maybe wishful thinking. Of course, you need to probably also put some targets in place just to, to get that big push. But what's, what's your view on that? Well, you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah, I think yeah. you're, you're, you're 100% on target. I think there has been a somewhat... And I, and I say it in past tense. I think there, mm-hmm. there has been a somewhat, and sometimes you still see it, but there has been a somewhat naive approach to diversity. Like if, as if you can manage on the numbers. If you only focus on getting and building a more diverse workforce, you can kind of, you know, put your hands in your pockets, lean back, and all the good things will follow. And we know that this is ju- ju- just not true. It's, it's in psychological safety, as, as to me, the core to inclusion is, as you say, it's the soil on which, in, on which this has to grow. Without inclusion, without psychological safety, you won't have the benefits from diversity and you won't be able to sustain diversity because what you often see is diversity is there, there are all kinds of asymmetries, right? If, if, if we talk about a diverse organization, if, if you are someone like me, able-bodied, white, heterosexual guy, my inclusion of psychological safety is not under pressure. Mm-hmm. So, but it is, and if you, and it's, it's other people with other backgrounds that might experience that more. And if you are in a, in a situation that is dominated by, say, you know, people like me that are not open-minded, that are not inclusive, and you see alternatives to go to another company where you see greater psychological safety and greater inclusion. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent, you'd be crazy not to. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. Go, yeah. go to a place that's more, more, more hospitable to what you have to offer. Yeah. You, you'll yeah. be happier, uh, and and you you'll be able to add more value. It, it's yeah. it's a no-brainer almost. Yeah. So yes, once I think to so what you say, and I don't think it's 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 overly optimistic. It is not only do you need psychological safety and the feeling of inclusion to benefit from diversity, it will also build the reputation of your company. Mm-hmm. As a as a place with a, with a hospitable, a welcoming, inclusive, diversity climate. Yeah, yeah. Whereas other companies will get a different reputation, and it will also make it easier for the one company. Uh, to attract and build a more diverse workforce than for the other companies. What I also see is that still organizations find it a bit difficult to talk about human behavior and uh, like the more, I call it more, the, sometimes the more soft pieces, right, of, of be, yes. uh, running a business. Um, so how can we make that more like people management evidence-based, right? That's what people grasp for, at least, yeah, a lot of leaders in organizations. So how... I think so. I think... I mean, I agree with your observation. There, there is this sense of, um, that I think it's, so you have soft and hard things, and hard things will be more important, mm-hmm. which is, which is, I think, hard to defend. Yeah. Um, but there's also traditionally this sense that people overestimate how good they are at doing this. So mm-hmm. so a lot of people think people management, I can do this from experience. I can do this because I have, you know, I, I've got great people skills and I know all this stuff. I've got, I, I'm a good judge of character, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and we know actually from research that people really overestimate their, their yeah. knowledge and skills in this respect. I've seen it, yeah. <laughs> so I would say from an evidence-based management perspective, an evidence-based management is nothing more than if you make important decisions, if you if you if you make decisions about how you move forward in your management of your company, get the relevant information on the table. 
And no self-respecting company would make important financial decisions with having the financial numbers on the table. No self-respecting company would make an important product decision with having the market research done, right? So mm -hmm. this, is, this is what we know. You get that information on the table, and that's what you built your decision on. The same should hold for people management. Mm -hmm. Behavioral research makes it possible to get good quality information on the table for you to determine how you want to develop the leadership in your company, how you want to approach diversity and inclusion, how you want to approach strategic change, et cetera. Yep. And I think we have to, well, companies do this, but we also have to embrace the notion that we have the science tools to support evidence-based management on the so-called soft side yeah. of organizations also. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we can even probably, uh, or we can even compare then, right? So we can really put put evidence behind it and then uh, track this in, in a way to see how we how initiatives are doing, right? And that's also something we work together on, right? With the uh, That's what you should be doing. Yeah. Because one, one way of saying it is, why would you invest a lot of time, effort, money in something and and not evaluate whether it had the effect yeah. you wanted it to have? Yeah. Because you're learning from this. If it had the effect, you can do more of it. If it didn't, you want to, you want a course correction. Yeah. You want yeah. to figure out why it didn't work. So there's this whole notion of evidence-based deciding what you're going to do and then assessing whether it actually works. Yeah. The basic the basic logic is there. Yeah. And I think if you do it more you will be more effective and more efficient in managing your company. Yeah, exactly. And especially if you think about it, in the, we, are, we have the knowledge economy, and in the knowledge economy, yeah. in many ways, your most important resources are your people. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so you're really on the behavioral side of things. This is about talking, how do you create a situation in which your people flourish and, yeah. and can really... Um, make good on the promise of their potential. Yeah, and I'm very excited, actually, that we uh, found each other in, in also working together on this, right? So um, uh, we as Deloitte then help really much more or, or the clients more on, on like the, um, uh, uh, the road mapping. But before that, yeah. we need to measure. And uh, that's how we found this collaboration with you as the better company to, uh, to do this survey and to really get the sentiment out of the organization. Like, where are we? And we now also developed this psychological safety scan that I'm very excited about to, uh, uh, to see in action. And, uh, and, and yeah, and it, and, it's, and it works. Then you have evidence-based, and that's what people need. <laughs> that's what leaders need, organizations need. So what kind of information do you get on the table when you do this survey, when you do this scan? So if you say, I want to manage on psychological safety, and I understand psychological safety is important, I care about this, so I want to know how I can build psychological safety. Psychological safety is a, is a psychological experience that you can measure in a survey. So one of the things you would do is you would measure the experience of psychological safety. The other thing that we propose you should also measure is what you could call the behavioral expression of psychological safety. Do people speak up when they think they should speak up? The analysis based on a scan like this would not only just say, okay, this is, this is what we found for psychological safety. It, in some teams, psychological safety and speaking up is higher than in other teams. It would also answer the question, what are the most important factors influencing the level of psychological safety and the level of speaking up? Because those are your anchors uh, for evidence-based interventions. 
So essentially what you would be saying is even though we might have measured, say, 10 to 12 plausible predictors of psychological safety, we don't want to end up with a conclusion, why don't you work on all 12? We want to end up with a conclusion, these are the two or three most important elements that drive psychological safety. This is what you want to focus your efforts on. Yeah. And that's what we will measure then also, like you can compare, right? From year to year or from quarter to exactly, quarter. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You can, because because you measure both psychological safety and, and the predictors of psychological safety. If you repeat the measure, you can also assess whether your interventions, whether the, the actions you took to build psychological safety have had the intended effect, yep. both in terms of raising psychological safety, but also if you realize, for instance, that there are elements of leadership that are underdeveloped, and that's part of the reason why sometimes psychological safety is lower. Have you been able to, to, to better develop those elements of leadership? Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I think is really important here, it also allows you to say, I'm not going to focus my efforts organization-wide, I'm going to focus my efforts on those teams that most need it. Yep. Because my survey tells me where the biggest issues are, and I'm going to make a more focused effort to develop, say, the leadership of the people leading those teams yep. or other factors that are important in those teams. So you, you don't have to go all out in, t in the entire organization for everything you want to do. You can have more effective and more focused efforts uh, if you have this evidence on the table. Yeah, exactly. Psychological safety, you cannot say my organization is psychological safe anyway, right? So you you focus exactly. that on teams anyway and, and maybe even individuals at some point then. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I would like to switch gears a little bit. We previously had a guest, uh, Dennis Luit, a former commander of the Air Force, and he has actually left a question for you. Uh, I think any any university is an interesting organization in the sense that there's probably some hierarchy eh, between the staff uh, and the professors and, and, and the teaching staff uh, and the students themselves. Uh, I, uh, so, so my question would be, you know, so how, how do you create uh, a psychologically safe environment where students, um, regardless of that sort of hierarchy which will be there mm -hmm. between student and teacher, I would say, how to create an environment where students are feel free to speak up mm. and to voice uh, voice their honest opinion? Yeah, because that's not always easy. I think for students to do that. Yeah, so I think it's, the question is definitely on target because universities are a place with, in a sense, a clear hierarchy based on expertise and experience. Students, if you have students in the classroom and you have faculty teaching, professors teaching, the hierarchy is clear, like the professor knows. If you have research teams, there is a hierarchy that the more senior researchers are supposed to know better. There, is, there are plenty of, you know, anecdotal cases uh, where you can say, well, here, here really is a psychological safety issue. Mm -hmm. Like students in a classroom that ask questions and the professor lets them know that some questions are stupid questions. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? It's, it's, it's unfortunately people can recognize this. It happens. Or um, research teams with everything from a, from a professor to a PhD student where the PhD student is made to feel that they're so junior that they should just, you know, whatever, whatever the more senior people say holds. So it, I think the question is completely on target. There, there can be an issue in a hierarchy that is so strongly based on knowledge and expertise because 
if things go wrong, the implicit or explicit message can be, I have higher expertise, expertise than you. I know more than you. So you should listen to me and I shouldn't listen to you. Mm-hmm. At the same time, and this is then the, 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 the flip side of it, I think most of the time, this is not what happens at all. Things go very well because organiza- universities are also organizations focused on learning. Mm-hmm. So what you typically want in a classroom, what you always want in a classroom, what, what I think most of us also are able to achieve in a classroom, is a situation in which students are not afraid to ask questions, but understand that asking questions, especially about stuff that they don't know or that might be wild ideas, etc., is exactly what they should be doing because that's how they learn. Uh, and the same for for research teams. And the mindset should be, and unfortunately often is, more junior people need to develop into more senior people. And the only way they can is by learning, by having the psychological safety to try out their ideas, share, contribute, etc. And the way I think this is approached in, or, in universities when it goes well is exactly the way I would say it should be done in any company when it goes well. And I don't care whether this is a top management team and, and this is what the CEO is doing or it is an R&D team or whatever. It is being open-minded, being humble, asking questions, listening, trying to understand the other's perspective and not assume that you know better. And to a certain extent, you can you can get into the habit if you are the, the the more senior, the more experienced, the more knowledgeable person. You can get bring yourself into the habit that you start with trying to understand the other's perspective and identifying what makes that perspective or that question or that lack of knowledge valid. To be able to say that is an excellent question because it reflects that you understand this and this and this, and you wonder about this. And that is on target because that gets to the core of the issue. Well, here's my answer. Um, and to also admit that sometimes you don't have the answer. Yeah. Like, I understand what you're saying, and this is a problem. And I don't believe, you know, our science has the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think? Yeah. Now, what, what, what triggers me is also to uh, talk about this, like uh, learning from mistakes, but even celebrating mistakes, right? That could also be even an option like we um we we saw or I, we heard a story from client that they that they uh, actually literally did like a, a, a buried uh, mistakes so they had a whole ceremony around it uh and to really learn from it and and to yeah to, again to celebrate mistakes i think that's something that could be done also in in a hierarchical uh, situation is that something that you do or that you it is it is not, I, I, re, I really, really like it. It's not something that we do, but the, the, the idea behind it really appeals to me. Yeah. Because I, I think the way we would typically talk about it is saying errors and mistakes can be awesome as long as you learn from them. And so I'm assuming that if, if they have this ceremonial celebration of a mistake, what they're also saying is this was awesome because we learned from it. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's the mindset you want you, you want you want to uh, to embrace. Is it, to a certain extent, you can say if you never make mistakes, you're probably not learning, or you're learning really really in baby steps. Yeah. Because you only do things that you're absolutely certain about. So think about how much you are holding yourself back by that approach. Yeah. You know you have this notion of I think it's IDEO the design company, uh, fail faster, succeed sooner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a more general notion. If, if you're not willing to try stuff and make mistakes, you're really holding yourself back in your development and learning. 
and, and, and learning might not to everybody sound like, oh, this is so important, but it's, it's the essence of what you need to do as an organization to, to, to move sustainably into the future. Mm -hmm. If you don't learn, if you don't develop, if you don't innovate, at a certain point, you will be obsolete. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the only way to, to exist 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, still exist 100 years from now, is if you develop yourself. Like, if, you know, if IBM would still be make, making typewriters, they wouldn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so everything we've said, right, during this, this conversation, um, and also bringing in the, the notion of that psychological safety is not a one-off thing, right? It's a continuous thing that we need to uh, put focus on. Is there? Do you think we will ever be able to create this perfect synergy and team dynamic? Uh, you know, so there's a, there's a reason why we, we called our company the better company and not yeah, the yeah. best company. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because our mindset is you can always do things better, but it's an illusion that you would ever say, well, this is optimal or this is the best we can do. Mm -hmm. So that would also be part of my, my answer. So is it, well, there, there is no silver bullet. You will, will never get to, to, but we can definitely get better at it. Mm -hmm. And I think to a certain extent, the reason to be optimistic about it is that a lot of these things, I think, are also self-reinforcing. Mm -hmm. If you work on a team, for instance, with higher psychological safety, you should be able to observe that you are able to generate more value from diversity of perspectives. Yep. So you should somehow be like, listen, this was, we really came to some new insights here because we really listened to each other yep. and integrated different insights. This is how we should be doing things. Yep. So I think I think we can learn from seeing seeing the see the behavioral expression of psychological safety in action. Yeah, I like this. We I can like learn that it, is a, that it is a good thing, that yeah. it is something we want more of. So I definitely believe we can get a lot better at it. At the same time, and this is then the, the, the pessimistic note, I think some of the things related to psychological safety are so fundamentally human. Mm -hmm. It's so fundamental in human psychology that they will arise again and again. Like people like status. People like to think of themselves as, you know, I, I'm the expert here. Which can always be intentionally or unintentionally be intimidating for other people. Uh, birds of a feather flock together, which, which will be true 100 years from now. Which also can make it for a more intimidating situation if, you know, if, if your feathers have a different color. So I think some of the things that put pressure on psychological safety are so fundamentally human that our work will never be done. But I think we can definitely get better at it than we currently are. Yeah, I like that. So I would like to um, uh, finish off by asking you to ask the next guest a question. And uh, our next guest will be Diederik Gommers. He's a Dutch intensive care physician at uh, Erasmus MC in uh, Rotterdam and a chairman of the Dutch Union for uh, Intensive Care. So what would you like to ask Diederik Gommers? Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that I can ask Diederik Gommers a question. So for, my question for Dr. Gommers would actually be based on the work of Amy Edmondson, who, who has been more influential than anybody, Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School, in, in making us all aware of the importance of psychological safety. Yeah. Her original inspiration to recognize, to realize that psychological safety is so important is the, the research she did in healthcare, like with surgical teams, et cetera. And she realized that there were team level differences in psychological safety that made a huge difference to the quality of care provided, to the ability of teams to learn, to master new techniques, et cetera. 
And that was in the, in, the, in the 1990s when there was much less awareness of psychological safety. So I'm really curious to know whether Dr. Gommers has identified, say, a positive development in healthcare in, in, in respect with our growing awareness of the, the, of the importance of psychological safety. Yeah. Is, there, is there a reason for some optimism that healthcare now is really doing better on discount than it did, say, in the times in the 1990s when, uh, when Amy Edmondson came to those insights? And, and then learning from this, how has this come about? And what yeah. can other organizations learn from this? Yeah, I like that. Well, thank you. Thank you for that question. And thank you so much for this open and candid conversation. I think we can talk much longer, but uh, at some point it's just uh, a stop. <laughs> so thank you so much. And um, I hope to, uh, to talk further later. And uh, for our audience, uh, uh, stay tuned for the next conversation. One of the key elements of psychological safety is having an open dialogue and feeling free to speak up. So if you have any questions or would like more information, feel free to reach out to me or our colleagues. You can find the contact information in the description of this podcast. We're looking forward to learn and share.